0: for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills, he's got two things in his hand: pipe wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new; they yeah. had been they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first deal they built up bet. No, <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had yeah. worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, aka Dr. Daniel Pierce. Of U N C Asheville to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers.
1: He wrote about one of his experiences of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn. Uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran <laughs> off the boat. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steel when Junior got tangled up in a in a barbed bar wire fence.
0: <laughs> so check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Same Vault Podcast.
2: Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At polepositionmag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at
0: PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history.
2: Earnhardt, out of his mouth, just like he had planned it, big white dog run out, big white dog run out for a big white dog run out in front of him. Don't you know not let that bull talk you into trouble? I said, nope. I might have been the crew chief, but that owner of ours is the final word. The junior wheeled around at me and said, what in the hell did he say? And I changed what he said. I ran to the car. I was the first person to the car. Not safety workers.
3: Me. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade.
0: And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, this week, we are going to be making a pretty big announcement at the end of the show. It doesn't have anything to do with the Scene Vault Project just yet. And we're still working on dotting the I's and crossing the T's on that deal. But it is something that we have been working on pretty doggone hard during the offseason. And Steve, it's something that I'm very, very proud of.
3: And you ought to be, Rick. This is a biggie, folks. You don't want to miss this. Steve, this week
0: in our first segment, we are going to share the third installment of our interview with Jeff Hammond. And again, what we're going to do, we're going to do a three-episode arc. And this episode, will finish up that first three-episode arc. And then we're going to go to some of the other interviews that we've done. Next week, we're going to share the first installment of our interview with Ward Burton. (laughs) 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 I love Ward. He is awesome. But then after we share some of those interviews, we're going to go back to Jeff Hammond and finish up with him. But we talked all the way back in our sixth episode about how Junior Johnson came this close, this close to letting Daryl Waltrip go and hiring Dale Earnhardt in 1984. But here is a mind blower for you, Steve. When Kelly Yarbrough left Junior at the end of the 1980 season, Jeff Hammond made a pretty serious pitch for Junior to hire Dale then.
3: Instead of Daryl.
0: Instead of Daryl.
3: I did not know that,
0: and I did not know this. But Jeff actually had a relationship with Dale that had gone back years. He'd also known Ralph, so really, yeah. So there was a little bit of a relationship there. They also had a little bit of a an exciting weekend the week that Dale Earnhardt won his first Cup race at Bristol. So they went a ways back, and Jeff made a pitch for. Dale to get that ride then.
3: If we went way back with Dale and knew Dale's father, Ralph, I can see the reasoning behind getting him to drive for junior.
0: Obviously that didn't pan out. And Jeff does talk about Daryl's pretty, pretty rough introduction to the team, considering that he had spent so much time fighting with this team in the late 1970s and in
3: 1980. I think Daryl touched on that a while back when we talked to him, right?
0: He did, and we're going to share that clip on this episode. So it got so bad between Jeff and Daryl very early on that Junior actually took Jeff off the road at one point and just had him come in on race day to jack the car.
3: Try to calm things down
0: that way, right? As things sometimes have a way of working out, Daryl started winning, and he started winning big. And winning has a way of smoothing out all the problems. (laughs) It certainly does. (laughs) And it did smooth out at least some of the problems. Jeff eventually, of course, obviously got on board with Daryl's way of doing things. And when Tim Brewer left the team at the end of the 1981 season, Jeff went to junior and he asked for a shot at being the crew chief. Then once he got in that role, Jeff was a little bit of a buffer between Daryl and junior during races. Now, Steve, I know you can't imagine Daryl and junior having differences of opinion, even under the best of circumstances. (laughs) Well,
3: You got two strong-willed individuals right there. Daryl, who's looking to really take off in his career and junior who's been around a long time, has won championships and give him credit. He knows what he's doing. So when you have those big, strong personalities on the same team, you can have but.
0: And finally, to close out this arc of the interview with Jeff, Jeff does remember Daryl's very serious crash at Daytona in the 1983 Daytona 500. And that's probably not one of the accidents that we remember a lot, but it did take a pretty serious toll on Daryl.
3: Yeah, I think it certainly did. And I think Daryl had the kind of injury, lingering injury after that accident that today gets a lot more medical attention than it used to.
0: Steve, then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the March 25th, 1982 issue of Grand National Scene. That issue carried coverage of Daryl's wins at both Bristol and Atlanta, which were Jeff's first as a crew chief. That's why we picked that one out. Plus Steve, there were a ton of news items in this issue.
3: Well, don't want to brag, but most of the time and seem we did have a ton of news items.
0: <laughs> Listeners, if you can, I would appreciate it. If you could please possibly consider supporting us on Patreon on a monthly basis or on PayPal, every little bit helps they allow us to do what we love to do. And that's producing this podcast and talking about NASCAR history and remembering NASCAR history. So if you can help us out on Patreon, help us out on PayPal on Patreon, that address is patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the (laughs) scene vault podcast. So not only do you have the dynamic of Kel leaving Mm -hmm. and the hurt feelings there, you have this guy coming on board that you'd spent basically every waking moment Mm -hmm. for the past four or five years trying to whoop and him talking about you and you talking about him. And what was the reaction to Daryl Waltrip coming on board at first?
2: Disappointment. Really? Yeah. Okay. And – from my personal standpoint, I was disappointed because number one, I did not like Daryl and his attitude. Number two, I thought there was somebody out there that was better than Daryl and would have fitted in there, fit in better than what you know Daryl wound up than, than he was in my book at the beginning. All right, I understand? I'm saying also at the beginning because I knew Dale Earnhardt. I grew up watching him race. I'd, I'd known his dad, Ralph. They'd worked on our dirt cars. I and mean, there was a lot of personal stuff that I would go, you know, like we, even when Kale was racing for us, I had a good rapport with Dale. Uh, we had a real unique moment in '79, for example. He was driving for Rod Austin. We were at Bristol, and it was raining. So, obviously, you know, we weren't practicing. Came lunchtime. Dale comes over and said, hey, Hammond, you got a car? I said, no, why? He said, I was hoping you had a car. We'd run over to this uh, Chinese joint down the road here and get something to eat. I said, well, hang on here a second. Let me see what Junior's got going on. Maybe we can use his car. And Junior had, you know, big 78, 79 and Powell you know four door that's what you used to drive back and forth at the racetrack. So he said, like he said, yeah, if y'all wanna use it, go ahead. You just be careful. I said, okay. Didn't think nothing about it. Got the keys. Went back, told Arnold. I said, Ironheart. and then I like I said, hey Ironhead, I got keys. We're well, we gonna go? He said, Yeah, let's go. So me, Dale, um, Doug Richard, Lula Rosa, trying to think now. There's one other boy. The one other boy worked for, for Austin. Because I was in the front seat, gave Earnhardt the keys, which you know, was not very smart on my part. But he knew where he was going, and I didn't. Yeah. So we get in the car. We go to the Chinese restaurant, which is back over where it is off now, you know, 80, 81 over there. And we eat. No big deal. But the deal going over there, Earnhardt was doing his little bit of playing. And the place had some almost like road, road course type moments, you know, going to Bristol, you know or I'm trying, yeah. trying to say. It's curves, a lot of curves. So Earnhardt's sliding the junior's car around and just cackling the car on like he always does. We ate and we got ready to go back. He said, you drive. Why do you want me to drive? He said, I want you to drive. I want you to drive like I did going back to the racetrack, see if you can keep up with what I did. So, okay. I get goaded into it and we're... Going through the mountains there, and I'm jacking it around a little bit. Ah, come on, man. Let it hang out a little bit. Let it hang out a little bit here. Let it hang out a little bit here. So we get up to was basically a left turn, 90 degree, going back. The road goes straight back to the racetrack. And uh, he said, pitch her in there. Pitch her in there. Come on. Show me something. <laughs> show me something. So I picture in there, and I'm sliding. Get the gas. getting the gas. Get, the gas, get the gas. I get in the gas, and it's starting to come back around. All right, turn it back, turn it back, to left, turn it back to left, and I got behind on the steering. Well, it comes around a little bit. Oh, now back, back, right, back, right, and back, left, back right, get off. Don't touch the brake. <laughs> we get sideways, long story short. goes off the embankment. And we weren't going that fast, but it got, I get it almost stopped, but it's still going faster than I could get it stopped. But I nose it off down the edge of the embankment.
0: <laughs> in the creek. Right, and, now, is and, and, this Junior's personal car? Or is this a loner?
2: This, this is this is a, a dealer car. <laughs> this oh. is a dealer car, not Junior's personal. But okay, all right. Uh, so I stick it over into the, off the edge of the road and down in the creek. And Earnhardt's all up in the windshield. I'm hanging on to the steering <laughs> wheel. And these other guys, I heard them hollering in the back. And it went over fast enough that uh, I believe it was Lula Rosa. He went up and actually hit the light. You know, the dome light and the roof.
0: Yeah.
2: And uh, cut his head. (laughs) He's he's bleeding. We're sticking down over in the deal, and we all start scrambling to get out, and we get out, and we're sitting there with the rear tires off the ground.
0: Now, is this the spring or the fall at Bristol?
2: Spring. Okay. Because spring, still spring. And, I mean – Two minutes after we crashed, all right, I'm looking, everything, I mean, doors open and shut, no big deal there, you know, I don't see the front wheels wrinkled up or nothing, but we're still, we're stuck, you know, what are we going to do? Didn't have cell phones, I didn't have cell phones now, and lo and behold, that intersection, Earnhardt looks, and says, God, look what's coming, (laughs) local sheriff, Earnhardt out of his mouth, just like he had planned it. He, just remember, big white dog run out, big white dog run out for, big white dog run out in front of you. Okay, big white dog run out in front of us. Then what? <laughs> he he waves the, the policeman down, and he's over there talking to him. He comes back over to us, and especially to me, he says, "Just calm down." He bought the story, big white dog. He's gonna take me back to track. I'm gonna get. I got four wheel drive pickup truck, and I'll get. I got a chain in the back. He said, "We'll get. We'll get it took care of. All right." It seemed like it was all day. We waited and waited and waited. And fortunately, it quit raining. So you know, it was. But sitting there waiting, here comes Earnhardt back, hooked the chain to it, four wheel drive, popped it right back out of there, no problem. The only thing that I'd done to the car, I had broke, the right front, headlamp because that's back when I had these big steel bumpers and everything yeah. like that. And I had shoved the, the grill piece back a little bit. That was it. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, dear God, thank you, thank you, thank you.
3: Thank
2: you. <laughs> um, get in the car, he said, I see back the track. Said, I, I'm running speed limit, ain't doing any shenanigans. Get back to the racetrack and park the car in such a way Junior can't see the right front headlight on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I know that, that I got to go tell him. Well, I start walking up to him, and and first thing come out of Junior's mouth, what the hell did you do? <laughs> Earnhardt could not wait when he got back to the track to tell him that I had wrecked it.
0: Earnhardt sold you out. He did.
2: He <laughs> threw me under the bus and backed up to make sure he didn't miss. <laughs> but no, I, I told Junior, I said, I said, this is what I did. He said, but don't you know not let that boy talk you into trouble? I said, Nope. <laughs> Guess not. So, I mean, I wound up paying to you know, get the car fixed, but.
0: So that was the spring of 79 yep. at Bristol. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to win his first race that weekend. Yep. Really?
2: Yep. And because of that personal relationship, I mean, yeah. Dale and I, you know, he, he spent nights at my house before him and Teresa got married. Okay. I knew the guy, you know, I knew he could drive and I, I liked him. You know, he wasn't, he was Dale, who was also a smart ass and cocky. But he was—he did it in a funny way, and Daryl, on the other hand, to me was always sarcastic, and and I always felt like when he was being a smart, smart ass, he was being demeaning, and I'd seen some of the rant, the verbal exchanges between him and Kale, and Kale walked on water in my world, Daryl didn't, and so him coming there and us not taking Dale Earnhardt, I, you know, it hurt my
0: feelings. Was that something that had actually been discussed pretty
2: yeah, seriously? Pretty seriously, because you know, he wanted to come and drive, you know, for junior and that, that had been brought up.
0: But he had a contract with Oster. No,
2: he had, he he was he was gonna be where you could get him. All right. He was gonna be available in nineteen eighty one. All right. I actually went to Junior and asked him. I heard you're talking about taking Darrell. Why ain't you taking Earnhardt? He said, "Let me tell you something." He said, "I've been around the sport a long time. Earnhardt hasn't crashed enough cars to be what I need. Really, I need somebody that needs to be that needs the money, and it's, he needs. He's already he's learned by losing, and, and that's what, what you know. lost a couple championships. Seventy nine, he lost that championship, and eighty come close again." Daryl's ready. Dale's not. Even though Earnhardt won the championship, he's not ready to do what I need to do. He explained to me just like that. He's not, he's not crashing enough cars yet. And I think he saw the same thing in Kel Yarborough when he brought him back, you know, and picked him up and put him in that number 11. Cale was ready. Daryl's ready. He was right and I was wrong. You know, personal can't get in the way of business, and that's what Junior is all about. I need somebody that can go out, and if we enter 28 races, he can bring it home, you know, 26, 27 times, because I'm going to build a race car that allows allow him to do that, and I need someone to be smart enough to know how to, to do it. A lesson, once again, from Junior Johnson University. If you work with Junior long enough and you listen to what he says and what he doesn't say and listen to some of the people that are around him, you can learn a lot about the do's and don'ts. And I think that his entire career, especially his professional uh, career of being not the driver but being the owner, stands out as much as anything because he was usually pretty dang in tune and pretty sharp on the right moves at the right time.
0: So you're not fully on board with Darrell coming on board with the team?
2: no. No.
0: How how long did it take you to become convinced? Because he gets in that car and there's no other way to put it. He put a whooping on the field that fur I mean, right out yeah. of the box.
2: Uh I didn't get along with Daryl early enough in eighty one that Junior thought best and it's this. It started happening too, especially when we were, we were you know, going to the downsized cars. And at that time, you know, we only used to have, like I say, a speedway car and a everywhere else car, too. And we knew that we were still going through a lot of improvements. So where I'm going with this is, I didn't like Daryl. And it it kind of shone. because anytime Daryl would say something that made it sound like he was smarter than the rest of us. I was usually pretty quick to come back with, uh, well, we didn't need it with Cale. We didn't run it like that. Daryl wanted to change stuff. You know, he wanted it his way. And I just wanted to do it, you know, Junior's way. And I think Junior realized, you know, because at one time, you know, we had a couple races there that we didn't do as well at as we should have. And we were getting behind, you know, Bobby and everything. So, again, long story short, Junior came to me and he says, I'm, I'm going to start leaving you at home until the weekend, till, you, till, till Sunday. I need you to come in on Sunday, you know, pick wow. the car and everything. He said, I need you to stay here and work on these new cars, and which we did. We were trying to turn cars out. So I've at, at, uh, got, got a picture we took at Junior's one time, and we had like five or six cars. You know, that's when we built the designated road course uh, car for Sonoma, I'm not Sonoma, uh, Riverside, and we built a, a special uh, short track car. You know, so we were building specialty cars as we were progressing in '81, and nobody else was doing that to the degree we were. And he was working with Banjo Matthews, and Banjo was developing, you know, some little tricks to the car to make it drive better. Because Daryl would talk talk to him about, "This is what this feels like." When you narrow the tread width up as much as we did in '81, you know, based off of NASCAR's um, rules, we didn't have the big wide Monte Carlos, which were just very forgiving and very drivable. The narrower tread width uh, was really a handful. So all this you know, technology that we were doing with Banjo and Chevrolet, Chevrolet and Buick, I should say General Motors, uh, was needed to be imp- you know, implemented. So I was helping get it ready. But I still went to the racetrack every weekend and pitted a car. I was on a pit crew. Um, the success was there. We were developing a better organization as far as developing cars. That was there, and in the process of all this, and I think part of it was also because of our fan base, I remember even though we won the race at Richmond, a guy coming over was up outside the victory lane, and he was cussing Daryl up, up a blue blaze, and he said something about Junior, and Junior started to go outside after him. <laughs> and I never will forget, he said, and the guy backed off, Junior, I went talking you. I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to say it like that. He said, I just love, love Kale, and I, I hate that guy you got driving for you. He said, well, you better not include me into it. That's all I can tell you. He's my driver, and I just the way it's going to be. So get over it. And we were trying to get the fans to quit booing Daryl to the point that we used to have Mountain Dew hats that they give to us. And we throw them up in the grandstands as we pushed the car out on the line because we got booed. And we pushed that number 11 out. And, and with Kale, it was the opposite. And you put the 11 up there then, I mean, everybody cheered for Kale. But everybody booed at, at Daryl. So we tried to, this philosophy, okay, nothing else will kill them with kindness. We, you know, we'd have like eight or ten guys there, so we'd all throw our hats up in there, and somebody else would bring another, another six or so, and we'd throw them up in a grandstand back in the day. The fence wouldn't hide a lot of racetracks. So places like Wilkesboro and Martinsville, was easy to do. So as we went along, where I'm going with this is that I started to understand that philosophy of why Daryl, Works you so hard trying to get the car set up the way he needed it, especially then. And if you gave it to him, he'd give you the result. So understanding his prowess and the reason behind him, even though he didn't maybe deliver the information the way you wanted to hear it, you started appreciating the success. And the end of the year, um, I, I bought in. I had bought in and understood what was going on. Because of that success in 81, you know, we actually lost Harold Elliott, our lead engine guy, and Tim Brewer, Ed Thrapp. and I think it was one other person. Like four people left. And, you know, Junior was looking for somebody to come in and replace Brewer and him as far as that was concerned. And I went in the office one night, asked Junior to give me a shot. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talked to my dad about it Uh, he said you think you can handle it i said i don't know i said i've been on that radio listening with junior for uh, quite a while listening to tim listening to travis carter i'd like to think i can i said but i I need to raise my hand here before somebody comes in and takes that position so junior talks to daryl and I guess Daryl saw that, you know, I had changed my attitude toward him a little bit. He, you know, he was willing to give it a shot. But to make sure that we didn't make too big of a mistake, we brought in Doug Richard. Doug had already won a championship with Osterlin. Mike Hill. Uh, Mike had been recommended from, um, i trying to remember his name, out of South Carolina, where Mike's from. And I think uh, Banjo knew him. So I didn't really know Mike. But I didn't know Doug. Well, they put, you know, Junior put us in there and said, okay, well, we're going to do kind of like a tri captain deal. Yeah. And as we went along through the year, uh, we worked well together, but, you know, Daryl started kind of looking at me as more or less the, the captain of the three. And that's, that's where, by the end of the year, I, I had been kind of elevated to lead dog and worked 82. We backed up what 81 was all about and moved on in 83, and um, I was declared unit you know, crew chief you know, officially on everything.
0: How much pressure did you feel to live up to the kind of success that the team had had?
2: I, I don't want to be cocky, but none. Really? People need to understand, yeah, Jeff Hammond in the record says that I was crew chief. But you got to understand, I might have been the crew chief, but that owner of ours <laughs> it, well, it, yeah. it, it is the final word. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's a lot of things when you work for a junior, you didn't always do like a lot of, of leaders or boss men do, of saying that that's, don't do it that way, do it this way. His, his methodology was always, he'd walk by and if he didn't like what you were doing, he said, are you sure that's the right way? Or you want to rethink that? And he'd keep going. He didn't always stop and tell you how to do it. He'd let you figure it out. He'd make you know you need to change something. And same way with the crew chief and deal. If I'm listening to Daryl and I'm thinking this is what he wants, this is what he needs, I didn't d- make that change without clearing it through the, through the headband. I mean, Junior would guide and a couple of times early when I was a crew chief, I remember I was going to do something, kind of pull some strategy off. And Jerry said, no, 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 no. You don't, you, don't want to, you don't want to stretch that fuel right now. It's too early in the race. If you miss it, you're going to be behind all day. You're not going to get caught back up. And he, he overemphasized, don't go for something until the reward is worth it, which usually meant a win. In his book, you don't gamble until you know you're gambling on a win. Not to lead a lap and get, you know, win a boat. You know, like a lot of times they give a a bonus for leading the most laps at halfway or whatever. Well, that may have meant we need to run three or four extra laps to do it. That ain't worth it in his book. He wants to win, he wants the points, and he wants the money at the end of the day for the big prize, not the little prizes, the big prize. And that pretty much you know was ing- ingrained in my mind throughout the rest of my career when I, from that point on is that I would clear it through him, I'd get signal of approval or whatever, I'd call Daryl and implement it, execute it, and we'd go on.
0: So you and Daryl eventually developed a pretty close working relationship. At what point did you feel like you and he were on the same page after that pretty rocky start? Really
2: early on, okay because you know I humbled myself and realized that my job, and I think it was one of the reasons why um, maybe junior realized this and was willing to give me this opportunity is that Daryl needed somebody to holler at Daryl needed somebody to holler at him in the way of supporting you know make him seem like he was bigger than life and the and the days that it was going bad he needed somebody that would take all the verbal abuse he would dish and remember that whatever was said on Sunday was forgot on Monday you never took it personal it was just that heated moment and i that's why i'm here for you know throw me out throw me everything you got all the crap you got just it on me you know don't take it out on the guys take it out on me wow and that's the way i always worked you know with him and accepted what he what he gave me because in the end, you know, you get him zoned back in and get him off that edge, he get right back in the groove, and you still you had a good day. Um, I do remember one incident we had going on. I think it was um, at a Wilkesboro race. I remember Daryl was going off, and he was going off like Daryl can go off, you know. And Junior said something to him over the radio, and. Daryl fired back at Junior. Wow, which you you don't you don't do. (laughs) And Daryl and I laugh about this, but I saved Daryl's life that day (laughs) because I heard what he said, and Junior wheeled around at me and said, "What in the hell did he say?" And I, I changed what he said. (laughs) I knew, I knew <laughs> that if I didn't if I didn't get between these twos, that he was going to be waiting on Darryl when he came into pits. I mean, I already witnessed one time where Daryl got to run his mouth, and, and Junior came back and told him one day about the car and everything, and he was trying to run the pits from the driver's seat. And he said, Darryl, you want to run these pits, you want to drive his race car? Because if you want to run these pits, bring your ass in here now. So it's like that was a mi- mild – brush up
0: now was that the eighty-one, eighty-two time frame or was that maybe afterwards
2: no it was it was during the early early time okay. it was uh-huh. during the early time because you know daryl i think at that point had gotten by with it you know what i'm saying and i just think that you know junior put him in his place and because junior junior had daryl owing him money because he bailed him helped him get out of the you know the, the die guard deal and At the same time, he'd already given Daryl wins like he had never had before. And I think that, you know, that Daryl was also being reined in. And that was, I think, going back to the reason why we had Daryl driving rather than Earnhardt driving. I think Junior felt like, I can rein Daryl back in. I can can keep him in check. And he did. I mean, if you look at his career, I mean, he had the most successful years in a short run that anybody could ever want. So – it's um, all because I think everybody respected Junior. And at the, at the same time, if you don't respect your you know, your, your elder, you better respect, respect your better because I, he could still jerk a knot into you if he had to. I've seen him do it to a couple of people, and I, I never would want to be on the receiving end of it. <laughs>
0: 1983, Darrell got in a pretty serious crash during the Daytona 500 and got pretty banged up
4: trouble out of turn number four Waltrip is out of control and skidding across the grass bangs into the inside guardrail comes out in traffic and smashes into the outside wall everyone may get by here comes the rest of the field as Waltrip's battered Pepsi Challenger lies right in the middle of the racetrack Darrell Waltrip losing it, coming out of turn number four. Let's go up to Dave to Spain. That crash began as the leaders were coming to the yellow.
5: Brooks looked like he might have wanted to go on pit road, Barney. The race was back to the yellow flag. But Dix Brooks got out of the throttle. Lake Speed tried to go by him on the inside. He was trying to unlap himself. Waltrip, also a lap down, was the next man in line saw his opportunity, and had hammered the throttle but found himself with no racetrack, and suddenly the Pepsi Challenger was sideways and careening into the inside wall. It was the race
0: back to the yellow flag that took the toll on Darrell Waltrip. How much of an impact did that have? On
2: that's, that's the reason why we didn't win, I think, repeat and have three in a row. It was okay. because of that. Um, I did not realize until... Really, until about 2000, when we left, lost Dale Earnhardt, how severe Daryl's injury was. But it, it really put a spotlight for me on both those incidents of what closed-head injuries can really do. In Daryl's case, I mean, he had a severe concussion. I mean, I, let me back up here a minute. When he crashed... I'm calling him on the radio, and he's not answering. And from my vantage point, I could see him slumped over the wheel. And all I could think about was Bill Dennis. I could think about another, another driver, Jerry Punch, You know, basically saved uh, by going out there on the racetrack. So I ran all the way down where I'm looking straight across at the car where it stopped up almost in a tri-oval on pit road. And when everything slowed down, I ran to the car. I was the first person to the car, not safety workers, me. And I went in from the passenger side, didn't have windows in them at, like we do today. And Daryl was slumped over a wheel. And I'm calling him by name Daryl, Daryl, talk to me. And I'm, I'm trying to see. And, I, and I, could, I, find, I could hear, uh, uh, you know, he was knocked out. I mean, he was definitely knocked out. And I would say, from the time he crashed to the time I got to him, Four minutes, four and a half minutes, something like that. I mean, that's that's knocked out pretty darn serious. And I get in there with him, make sure you know he's okay, not bleeding anywhere, and he's starting to finally kind of come around. And I didn't, I didn't want to grab him because I've had EMT training. I was trying to wait on the rescue workers. More importantly, I just want to make sure he's breathing, and he was breathing. They got there and they got the cervical collar on him and started getting him ready to get out of the car. They didn't have the means of cutting the roof off. And fortunately, you know, they put the cervical collar on, on him and got him out and got him on the stretcher. And he was starting to come around. I never will forget the uh, field and had come by with a pace car. And he was saying, what happened? What happened? Oh, it must be raining. And it was a speedy dry hitting him on the face. He thought it was raining. That's the reason why he crashed. Wow. But I got in the ambulance with him and he, you know, It took him a while. He said, where am I? And I said, you know who I am? No. Who are you? And I'm telling him. And so it's like from the ride from there to the infield care center, he came back around a little bit. But I think we went approximately three races into the season that he finally could remember a race. And
0: he didn't even miss any time.
2: Didn't miss Well, you couldn't say anything. If you were injured, you were out, and you didn't get no no freebies. Yeah. You know, winning a race didn't give you no guarantee to the end of the year. You what points you left on the board, you left them on the board.
0: Did you have relief drivers? None standing by.
2: None. He covered it up as as good as anybody I think ever has. Wow. I mean, what was going on in front of him, he could deal with, but he could he remember what went on afterwards? No.
0: That's it's scary. Yeah.
2: It's very scary.
0: That's, that's incredible. So, Kerry Yarbrough says that he is going to leave Junior Johnson and Associates at the end of the 1980 season, which meant that Junior needed to find himself another driver. Now, of course, he does eventually hire Daryl Waltrip, But here's the rest of the story, Steve. (laughs) Fire away,
3: Rick. I'm ready.
0: (laughs) Jeff Hammond had known Dale Earnhardt and his daddy, Ralph. And in the spring of 1979 at Bristol, it's raining at the racetrack. And Dale comes to Jeff and
3: he wants to go get some Chinese food. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) He's got the same taste in food as you do, Rick. Well, that was a revelation. Evidently, Dell Earnhardt liked Chinese
0: food. Jeff got the keys to Junior's car from Junior. So right there, you know there's going to be something going on, okay? (laughs) They get Doug Richard and Lou La Rosa, and off they go to the Chinese place. Dell drives to the restaurant, and Dell Earnhardt, being Dell Earnhardt, he proceeds to put on a show on the back roads between the racetrack and where they're going to eat. If I'm riding along with Dale on those back roads and he's slinging it around like Bo and Luke Duke or whatever, I don't know that even I am going to be ready to eat Chinese food when I get out.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I can assure you that I learned very early in Dale's career, not to get in a car with him. We were up at Lake Norman. He was going to drive me to another location. And we're taking off, going about 55 or 65 miles an hour on a small Lake Oman Road. And all of a sudden, we're tearing through a plowed field. He's left the road. We're cutting through a field. And he's driving with his elbows on top of the steering wheel. (laughs) He said, you like that? I said, no, pull it back on the road. Man, it scared me to death. (laughs) After that day, I never again rode in a car with Dale Earnhardt.
0: Well, I rode with Bobby Helen one time and he was doing 55 or 60 out of his
3: driveway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is 55 or 65 in a 35 zone. (laughs)
0: Then on the way back from the restaurant, Dale hands Jeff, the keys and Jeff is driving. He's behind the wheel. Dale is ragging on Jeff. Come on, man. Let's go. There's a dog peeing on your back tires. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. So he's kind of egging him on. and. Jeff proceeds to slide it off an embankment. Lou hits his head on the dome light. He's bleeding. They stumble out of the car. And within moments, here comes the local sheriff. Uh-oh. Oh, And Dale Earnhardt has evidently been in this situation before he is prepared. He's got his story already rock and roll. And as the sheriff is getting out of the car, he tells Jeff now, just remember big white dog, big white dog ran out in front of you big white dog. Remember, big white dog ran out yeah. in front of you. The sheriff buys it, and basically the only real damage is a broken left front headlight, but by the time Jeff gets back to the track, Dale has already ratted him out to Junior and told Junior what had happened. Dale could not wait to tattle on him and get him in trouble.
3: Well, You know what? That sounds like an art This is the rest of the rest of the
0: story from Jeff Hammond's memory. If he was not mistaken, that took place at Bristol in the spring of 1979. And that was the weekend that Dale Earnhardt won his very first Winston Cup race there at Bristol. How about that? So
3: that is one more detail to an event that we thought we knew. I certainly didn't know any of that story around it. Pretty neat, though, if you ask me.
0: Here's another huge what if that we talk about so often here on the show. Jeff said that because of that personal relationship, after Kel left, Jeff actually went to Junior and suggested getting Dale to drive the car. And Junior's reaction was this. He ain't wrecked enough cars yet. To which I'm sure Dale would have responded, I ain't wrecked enough cars? Hold my beer.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know he would have responded that way. But Junior was a guy who liked to see some seasoning in his drivers, some experience before he hired them. told me one time that he was very lucky that the drivers he had were in their prime when he had them. That way, he didn't have to teach them anything. All he had to do is to make sure the cars We're ready. That's it.
0: Well, here's the thing that doesn't compute to me. Dale Earnhardt had just beat Cal Yarbrough and Junior Johnson & Associates for the 1980 Winston Cup Championship. He had won a championship, and from what Jeff said, Junior still didn't think that he was ready. (laughs) Steve, we do know that Dale did not get that ride, and it did go to Daryl Waltrip, and he was – very, very successful in that car. But the backstory to that was that for several years, and we've mentioned it last week, and we talked a little bit about it in the intro, but Daryl Waltrip had been fighting Kel Yarborough tooth and nail for every inch of real estate out on the racetrack, and then talking about Kel and his team, every chance he got off the racetrack. And so it made for a little bit of a Hatfields and McCoys situation. But then Kel leaves and Junior says no to hiring Dell Earnhardt. He hires Darrell Waltrip, which meant that one of those Hatfields is now driving for the McCoys.
3: Racing makes strange bedfellows. Ha.
0: <laughs> and you can just imagine what the reaction was from Jeff and the rest of the people up in Hollow And... According to Daryl Waltrip himself, he did have a pretty rough introduction to Junior Johnson and Associates. And he talked about that in our interview that we did with him last year.
1: Well, I was the enemy. When I went to drive for Junior, <laughs> I was not, I would not, I mean, Junior loved me because, yeah. you know, Junior liked somebody, he liked a winner. And uh, I'd proven that I could win. So Junior, Junior, Junior loved me. But Tim Brewer and that whole crowd, the Harold Elliott and all those those guys that were up there, uh, I was the enemy. And so Junior had hired the enemy. And so when I go in, it's hostile. Uh, you know, they're not that excited about me being there. Bill Allman, one of Junior's longtime employees, wouldn't even talk to me. Uh, and finally, I mean, I, I just, I don't know what I was going to do, but, uh, you know, we're getting ready to go to our first race. I think it was Riverside. And uh, Brewer was there, and Brewer didn't like me. And. Uh, it was just it was kind of uncomfortable. But uh, I'll never forget, we went to Riverside. I won that race. And uh, then we got ready for Daytona, and we were working on these. This, remember, it's the year they downsized the cars, went from the big Monte Carlos to the little Buicks and all those. We had a Buick. And Brewer's working night and day building cars. And, I, and I'm and i in there with him. I mean, I, the one thing that you have to ask anybody that's ever worked for me or worked with me, I don't ask them to do anything I won't do myself. And so if we're going to stay up all night and work on the car. I'm going to stay up all night and work on the car with you. I don't may not be able to do anything. We go get some coffee and some donuts. But uh, you're in, I'm in. And that kind of broke the ice. And the last guy was Bill Allman. and Bill was like an old old guy, ground cylinder. He has been at Juniors for years, and he talked with. Oh, grab a lot. And uh, he drank a lot of moonshine, really strong moonshine. And so Brewer, in Wells because- County. <laughs> yeah. there was a lot of those people that I reckon I don't know for sure anyway Earl uh, came to me one day and he said things are going pretty good he said but if you're going to make it around here you're going to have to get Bill on your side he said because he, he kind of rules the roost so you need to go in and talk to him I alright so I had a cup of coffee and a styrofoam cup and Bill's back in the motor room I go in the motor room He back around on a set of heads he looks around me and says ah so you're the SOB that's gonna take the place, huh? I said, Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I, I think we can do a lot of good. and I think we can win some races, and uh, looking forward to working with all you guys. And uh, blah blah blah, you know, trying to being a diplomat. He says, uh, "You ever drink any moonshine?" <laughs> no, nah? I nah, can't say as I have. He said, "Let's have a let's have a let's have a a shot." So he opens up his toolbox and pulled out a fruit jar. I don't know what it was. It looked like it was clear as it was clear. And uh, I dumped out my coffee and I said, Here, just dump it in this coffee cup and this styrofoam. And so he dumped some in the star in the cup and man, I smelled it. I said, whew, Knock your socks off. So I was just about ready to take me a little sip of it, and the bottom of my cup fell out. <laughs> <laughs> how strong that's how strong it was. It ate that styrofoam cup up. Well, that actually turned out It turned out to be a good thing because me and Bill both thought that was the funniest thing we'd ever seen. He laughed, I laughed, and he said, I'm going to give you your own trial. He said, we'll see how you do. And Bill and I became great friends. That was the thing about it. When I went up there, it was kind of hostile, but I wasn't there very long until I made everybody there was my best friend. and We all became buddies, and we really worked well together, and Floss and Junior. and uh, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I'd never been in a place like that before. They would show me what they were doing to the motors or to the cars. And I'd say, well, no wonder I couldn't beat you. You know, you guys just had a lot of things that we didn't have. Junior was in with Chevrolet, and they were getting stuff all the time. And it was just a it – was, it, was it was a playground, really, for me. I, I'd never been in a place like that, and I loved every minute of it.
0: Darryl gets in the car in 1981, and I did not realize just how crazy his stats were that year. In 31 starts, he won 12 races. He finished in the top five 21 times, and he got 25 top tens.
3: That record is exactly why Junior wanted to hire him. Darrell
0: won the championship by 53 points over Bobby Allison. So, yeah, DW won everybody over.
3: Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but still, as I mentioned earlier, there was enough friction between Jeff and Daryl early on that season that Junior actually started leaving Jeff at home, having him work at the shop and only bringing him in on race day to pit the car, jack the car. But of course, Jeff eventually bought into Daryl's way of doing things. And when Tim Brewer, Harold Elliott, and a couple other guys left at the end of 1981 to go join Kale at MC Anderson's team, Jeff went to Junior, and he asked for a
3: shot at being the crew chief. Well, I tell you what, that took some nerve on Jeff's part.
0: Well, it was a gutsy call for a kid who was still in his 20s at the time. Junior did give Jeff his shot, but it came with a little bit of a caveat. Jeff wasn't going to be the crew chief. Junior set up kind of a co-crew chief, a triumvirate of crew chiefs with Jeff and Doug Richard and Mike Hill.
3: Yeah, each one of those guys had a specific skill that Junior liked. I think Jeff and Doug were the leadership kind of guys. They knew how to get a team motivated to get the work done well. Michael was more of the mechanic and tech side of the, of the sport. So I think that way, Junior had a nice combination of qualities.
0: Eventually, Jeff was named the crew chief, but make no mistake about it. When Junior Johnson is your team owner, Junior Johnson... <laughs> has the final say on what was going to happen on on a pit stop.
3: Uh, anybody who knew junior knew that.
0: And it did sound from what Jeff was saying. It did sound like he served as a little bit of a, uh, buffer between Daryl and junior or a big buffer between Daryl and junior. Daryl could evidently get pretty fired up during the race and fuss and yell and all that kind of thing. And it was Jeff's job to take that as best as he could and kind of settle Daryl down. There was a time at North Wilkesboro where Daryl kind of popped off at Junior on the radio. And Junior was like, What in the hell did he just say? <laughs> <laughs> he said that day, I saved Daryl Waltrip's life. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Jeff had a pretty strong responsibility, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, I would say so.
0: But whatever was going on in the pits. Daryl Waltrip won championships in each of his first two years with the team. And they go to Florida for the 1983 Daytona 500. And Daryl winds up in this huge crash coming off turn four. And we have talked about that in the past. All the accidents that used to happen there at Daytona coming off turn four, they hit that big wall that was there near the entrance to pit road and kind of catapulted them back into traffic. And that's what happened. With Daryl, Dick Brooks was leading, coming to a caution. Lake Speed and Daryl were both trying to get their lights back, and Daryl hit that wall and it shot him back across traffic. Jeff said that he was the first person to the car, and he actually went in the passenger side window to see if he could help. He's asking Daryl, do you know who I am? Once he's able to respond, Daryl was like, no, who who are you? Here is the absolutely scary part. Jeff said it was probably three races into that season before Daryl Walter could even remember
3: racing. Well, I'm no doctor, of course, but this sounds like a concussion injury. And back then that type of injury did not receive the tension. It does today in all sports concussions are treated much more radically today than they were back then. And they receive a heck of a lot more attention. And again, that's in all sports. So I think that is pretty much what happened to Daryl here.
0: Listeners follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And this week, Brian posted – an early 1980s pre-Coors
3: t-shirt of Bill Elliott. Before he got the course sponsorship, there was a t-shirt of of Bill Elliott. Yes, there was. That's amazing. (laughs) Really (laughs) amazing.
0: Well, if that's amazing, how about this? He also posted a Ron Barfield t-shirt from when Ron drove for Bill. You gotta
3: be kidding me again. No, no, no. There is a Ron Barfield T-shirt out there. Yes, there is. (laughs) And it's available on Brian's Etsy store. So,
0: again, if you could follow Brian Kelb, you can do that on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens. And check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.etsy.com. Steve, the March 25th, 1982 issue of Grand National Scene featured coverage of Daryl Waltrip's victories at Bristol and then another win the very next week in Atlanta. And, Steve, at that time, that year, the paper was printed every other week through March and then weekly beginning in April. So that's why there were two races covered in this issue.
3: That's all we could afford.
0: (laughs) As I mentioned earlier, the Bristol win was Jeff Hammond's first as one of the crew chief triumvirate with Mike Hill and Doug Richard.
4: White flag for Waltrip as he flashes across the line on his victory lap and heads to Eli in turn two. Off the second turn, he is caught in. Waltrip is
1: behind Brad T, but no rush here as Dutton noticeably backs it off just a bit. he's
5: in turn three.
4: Waltrip behind Brad Teague slows it up, takes no chances, eases it down to the start-finish line, and Harold Kinder drops the checkered flag, and Darrell Waltrip wins the Valleydale 500. He's the defending champion. He won both races here last year, and what a streak that team is on, Mike Joy. It's incredible. Nine of the last 13. Waltrip, it's his third win here in a row at Bristol International Raceway. Dale Earnhardt
0: takes the checkered flag for second, and Morgan Shepard for third. Mike Joy mentioned it on the broadcast, but this was Daryl's third win in a row at Bristol and the team's fourth after Kale had won the 1989 race there. And what's more, Darrell would win the next three races in a row at Bristol for seven in a row at seven Bristol. In a row.
3: That's correct. And there was uh, one good reason for that. As I have said before in the past, Junior's cars were always stout on the short tracks. You went into a race at any one of the short tracks for NASCAR, and most everybody expected a junior car to win. It wasn't only at Bristol. I mean, it was Martinsville, North Wilkesboro. At the time, Nashville, Richmond. Junior's cars were expected to be the favorites at each one of those tracks.
0: He was not uncontested that day. Del Earnhardt led twice for 255 laps, but then Gary Ballou spun in turn three on lap 398, and got into Dale and Dale went into the muddy infield, but he managed to get things going again without losing the lap. Now he was out of the lead, but he did manage to get going again without losing the lap and he wound up finishing second to Darrell 13.2 seconds behind Darrell, that's almost a full lap behind. That's right. That's right.
4: At Bristol international raceway, Darrell Waltrip has pulled the junior Johnson
5: Mountain Dew Buick into mm-hmm. victory lane. Let's go down to Ned Jarrett. Well, he's a happy fellow. He's getting his safety paraphernalia unbuckled, Mike, and he'll be out of here in just a moment. And he takes this opportunity, really, to take a drink of Mountain Dew and to get his breath because he's had a long, hard afternoon here. As we've said many times on the broadcast today, this is one of the toughest races there is to run in all of NASCAR Winston Cup racing. Of course, the Junior Johnson team and Darrell Waltrip have had it all together here so many times. Now he's coming out of the Mountain Dew Buick with the big smile on his face. He told us this morning that he needed a win. And here you are, Darrell.
6: Well, yeah, gum that was a tough one. Uh, got a little bit behind there at one time, but I'll tell you right now, uh, the all new 1982 do crew did one hell of a job today, and I'm real proud of my boys.
5: When you say you got a little behind there one time, was that purposely?
6: Well, Dale and uh, the two car were running off a of good Joe Ruttman, and. And I wasn't just right, so I didn't race them too hard, but I didn't mean to get as far behind as I did, but uh, in the back of my mind, what happened, it happened exactly like I thought it would.
5: Well, when the chips were down, you made that last pit stop. I made the comment on the air that you probably saved a good set of tires for that last hundred laps, and it really worked.
6: Well, it really did, and uh, I just need to thank all the boys, Junior and Brad and Jeff uh, uh, Hammond and Jeff Wilson and Mike Hill and uh, Gilbert and all the boys that work so hard on this race car. I tell you right now, we got a super crew for 82. I'm really looking forward to the rest of the year.
5: Well, it takes a lot of people to put together a winning team, and they've done it again here at Bristol, one of the toughest tracks on the circuit.
0: Also at Bristol that weekend, this issue also carried a short story on Phil Parsons' his late model sportsman, Bristol win over David Pearson, that we discussed with Phil a month or so ago in episode 126. but. At Atlanta the next weekend, Darrell passed Richard Petty for the lead as they raced toward a caution flag on lap 276 for rain.
4: He works the banking in the east end of the speedway. We're watching Waltrip try and make a dive onto the
5: low side each time through one and two a little differently. This time he takes him almost near the exit
1: of the turn and Waltrip might have been there, but he found race traffic.
5: That's going to let Yarborough make a move. He ducked to the inside, found that he could not get by that lap automobile either. Now as they come into three again, Waltrip going low, but Petty's able to hold him off. Waltrip gets inside. Now Caut- let's see if he
4: can pull it. Caution is on the speedway as they race down to the line. Caution comes out. Waltrip is there, door to door with Richard Petty. Who's going to lead the lap as they come to the line? It looked like it was Waltrip by just inches, but we're going to wait and see what they say on that one. We are under caution here at Atlanta.
0: Darrell said in the race lead, We felt all along it was going to rain, and I just needed to be in the right place to run around Richard when the caution finally came out. The caution came out just as we went into the third turn. It wasn't raining that hard, but it was enough, and it might have made Richard slip a bit. In any case, he went into turn three a bit hard and slid up. I was able to get under him, and Richard said, I drove in the corner up there and rain hit the windshield like someone dumped a cup full of water on the window. I didn't know whether turn four would be wet or not, so I let off. I think he did too, but it was dry in turn four. He was gauging me and watching if I was going to get loose high in the turn. If he got sideways down low in the corner, he'd have me sitting between him and the wall. As Randy Lejoy always said, eight tires corner better than four. <laughs> I wouldn't want to have called the finish. That's how close it was. This is how communication and the flow flow. Of information has improved over the years on pit road. Daryl continued and said, an engine blew on the front straight at one point, and the crew told me the caution was out when it wasn't. So I cruised for almost half a lap and lost a lot of ground. Another engine blew later, and the same thing happened again. I was told there was a caution when there wasn't. I guess we were too cautious and it hurt. The red flag came out for rain on lap 287 and it came out at 4.33 p.m., and at 5.18, the rain had let up enough for cars to return to the track and run under caution. But then another storm passed through, (laughs) and at 5.33 p.m., the race was called
3: with Daryl, the winner. I've been there. That's nothing new.
0: (laughs) Steve, don't you
3: hate? Oh, I hate Don't
0: you hate sitting there for rain and then – you think you have a little bit of an opening and you think that the car is going to be able to get back on the track. You think that the track is dry enough to go racing and everybody gets back on the track and the field starts rolling again. And then it starts raining again.
3: I've been there many times, Rick, (laughs) many times. The only (laughs) thing you can do is just roll your eyes and say, well, it's going to be tough making deadlines tonight. (laughs) And there
0: was a great line in the Our Opinion section on the rain in Atlanta. The commentary read When the rain came out and drenched the track, a few umbrellas came up and programs were spread overheads. Clothes, body, and fried chicken got soaked.
3: <laughs> of course, it's the truth.
0: <laughs> Kel Yarbrough finished third and he was surprised by the rain. Kel said, When this day started, I never thought it would rain. Had I known that it would rain, there's no doubt in my mind they would have had their hands full with me. I had the car to win it, and I wish I would have gone for it, as Daryl and Richard raced to the caution. But I just didn't think it would rain that hard. Earlier, Daryl and Richard were running strange. They were filling each other out, I think, and I was kind of watching them. I had a lot of car left, and I don't think they knew how much.
3: Rain always plays into driver strategy and what goes on the track. It's a guessing game. I mean, you have to figure out, do do I move to the front right now, which is usually what they want to do when the rains look like they're coming, or do I wait and see what happens? There's a whole kind of mishmash of different tactics and strategies when you're not racing each other, but you are racing the coming weather.
0: Today, crews have live up-to-the-moment Weather. Oh yeah. On their computer screens, they've got they've got NOAA, they've got the Weather Channel, they got whatever, and they can tell pretty much to the minute what's going on. They can see the radar and whatever.
3: Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Before it was a much bigger guessing game, but now with the radar and everything, and a guy is watching the radar and listening to what's going on, they can actually tell the driver, "Hey, rain in five minutes. Get to the front." Couldn't do that before.
0: By this time, Steve, Grand National Scene had gone international, (laughs) and there was a letter to the editor in this issue from Malcolm Thomas, who lived in London, England, and he had subscribed to the paper for, uh, according to the letter, about a year. So how How about about that? that? I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Malcolm wrote, I have been receiving Grand National Scene for one year now, and I have got to say it's the best newspaper I ever read. In fact, it is the only newspaper I ever want to read.
3: Well, I tell you what, Mr. Malcolm there was spending a lot of money to get that paper shipped to him in London, England, at least for back then.
0: Now, Steve, did you notice there where I did not attempt a English accent? Thank you. <laughs> the columns in this issue were on point. You wrote about Dick Brooks and the physical demands of racing at Bristol. Now, anytime you got a chance to write about Dick Brooks.
3: Oh, that's always a good time.
0: (laughs) That was evidently some good copy. So Dick was concerned that he was going to be able to finish the event. Here's one paragraph from your column. I'm telling you, Brooks added grabbing the not so sturdy muscles around his waist. There's a lot of grits in there. (laughs) I don't know if I can make it. I know it's going to be rougher on me than a lot of those other guys. Now, Steve, do you like grits?
3: Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I do
0: but <laughs> group likes uh, anything. <laughs> Jeannie worked in a restaurant just off the interstate when she was in college and she got a kick out of, uh, some people from up north. They were stopping by on their way through North Carolina and they came in, she was waiting on them and they just wanted to try this Southern delicacy. <laughs> and so they ordered a grit. <laughs> a grit. <laughs> <laughs> they ordered a grit. That's Jeannie's story about grits.
3: <laughs> well, when Ron Bouchard came South to run in Winston Cup racing, I was sitting down and talking with him. And I said, okay, I'm going to ask you some things about the South. And Ron said, oh no. I said, yeah, what are grits? And he just sat there for a minute, blinking his eyes and looking confused. And he said, "Uh, is that a food? (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course he was right. (laughs)
0: Of course, him patting his belly and saying that he didn't know that he was going to be able to get through the race or not. That of course led to a discussion of whether or not race car drivers are athletes. And Dick said in your column, let's put a couple of basketball players in chairs and let them sit through intense heat. Hear engine noises in their ears and breathe gas fumes for hours and see how fit they are. In my prime, I would have ripped out all the doctors' tubes, machines, and gauges right out of the
3: walls. <laughs> <laughs> and you made a very, very good point. And the next weekend, I was at the race and Richie Petty came up to me and said, And also, we lose about 10 pounds of sweat during a hot day at a racetrack. I read your article. Boy, that was the proudest I've ever been up to that time.
0: <laughs> Gene Granger's column was about Buddy Arrington working with Kenny Rogers on the NASCAR movie Six Pack. Buddy, Richard Childress, DK Ulrich, and Roger Hamby, they all had two cars down in Atlanta for filming, while Elmo Langley, Bill Elliott, James Hilton, Ernie Klein, Baxter Price, Glenn Jarrett, and Buddy Baker all had one car. And Buddy Arrington said, the best part of the whole deal is the money. They are paying us $1,000 a day for each car. I could take that kind of money for several months, but it's boring to me. I'm used to working all the time. All I've done so far is walk behind one of my cars and pick up my helmet while the camera panned by me in my car,
3: but the other guys were not strangers to movies. Most of them, as a matter of fact, were at Marnesville to shoot racing scenes for the movie *The Last American Hero*, starring Jeff Bridges. They'd done this before.
0: Alexis Lyris had a column about Tim Richmond, who talked about his famous ride on Johnny Rutherford's car as Johnny drove to Victory Lane, following his win. In the 1980 Indianapolis 500, Tim ran out of gas and couldn't quite make it to pit road. And Tim said in Alexis's column, I heard all the applause and the commotion. I was sitting in my car and I stuck my hand up real slow and the applause got louder. I waved it a little higher and the noise got louder. The car was starting to roll a little. So I popped my belts and started to stand up. The applause got louder. I was enjoying it. I started to jump off the car, got out turned around, and Rutherford drove up behind me. I'm waving at the crowd and having a good time. People were looking at me and pointing at Johnny. I looked at him. He waved me over and said, get on.
3: (laughs) I've seen pictures of that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So he thinks the fans are cheering for him, and it's actually the race winner coming up behind him. (laughs) (laughs) Tim also talked about his new house that he would bought on Lake Norman, which is just north of Charlotte. Tim said, Before, when I was on the road all the time, I liked my suitcases and my motel. Before I bought the house, Buddy Baker and I made some trips together, and I couldn't understand why Buddy was so grumpy when we'd start out. On the way home, Buddy would be like a happy little kid. Now, I'm the same way. I like staying at home, raking the leaves, and mowing the grass.
3: I don't know how much of mowing and raking Tim really did up there. (laughs) (laughs) There
0: was a short scene on the circuit item about Dale Earnhardt's attempt to record a radio commercial for Troxler Equipment Company in Concord, North Carolina. The spot was supposed to feature simplicity mowers, and things started off well enough for Dale, who said, the two things I look for in a mower are low cost and dependability. That's why I choose simplicity mowers. That was a good start. Yeah, simple enough. But then... And you and I can't understand how anybody would ever fumble their words or anything like that, (laughs) (laughs) but then he evidently started fumbling these words a little bit and then he went, ah, blankety blank, (laughs) (laughs) not good. Well, the announcer who was doing the commercial didn't miss a beat. And he said, and you'll say. Oh, blankety blank too. When you see the complete line of simplicity mowers, (laughs) that guy was
3: a professional quick on his feet, quick on his feet.
0: (laughs) Steve, for some reason, that version of that commercial never quite made it to air.
3: Do you think
0: (laughs) there was another SOC item about Raymond Kelly leaving the team owned by Bob Rogers. The team based in Greenville, South Carolina had sponsorship from Simonize for Tom Sneva and Butch Lindley, and Warner Hodgdon was paying for Neil Bonnet to run a few races. And when asked about the move, Raymond Kelly would only say, too many bosses, too many drivers.
3: (laughs) I can see his point.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, this is the kind of item that normally, probably I wouldn't have noticed, but there was this one thing that really kind of got my attention. And this is the line. Rogers said that Larry McReynolds, 22, is Rogers' new crew chief at this time. I call him Babyface, but now he's my main man. (laughs) 22-year-old Larry McReynolds.
3: And I think Larry went on to do some pretty good things.
0: Rogers also said in the story that he had tried to hire David Ift, but three hours before David was supposed to start work, he called and said that he was instead going to go to work for the team Bobby Halkins, it out of nearby Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. Scene ran a contest for readers to guess Bobby Allison's speed during time trials at Bristol, and three people guessed that Bobby would qualify at 110.125 miles an hour. But because Eddie May of Theodore, Alabama, got his entry mark in the earliest, he got a Gatorade racing jacket. Bobby's actual speed was 110.042 miles an hour, which put him sixth on the starting grid. Now, Steve, I have a question. There were three people who guessed closest to Bobby's actual qualifying speed. There were three people and you only gave away one of the jackets. Was there no way that you could have come up with two more Gatorade jackets for those two other poor
3: people? Well, let's put it this way. Back then, we didn't quite have enough influence with the sponsors (laughs) of the day. (laughs) You were
0: lucky to give away those Gatorade. Not
3: our little old paper.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And another SOC item caught my eye because of some back and forth that I have been having with Paul Tandy, who is one of our listeners. Paul is blind, and when he listens to some of our YouTube interviews, Some of them are in mono rather than in stereo when he listens to them using his headphones. So Paul and I have been going back and forth trying to figure out the issue. And I've actually purchased some new cables for the video cameras connection to our soundboard. Hopefully, hopefully those new cables will resolve the issue. So this item that was in the issue said that Richard Petty had received a message from Eddie Koniski of Onalaska, Wisconsin, who was also blind, that Eddie had recorded on a cassette tape. Rather than writing it out, he recorded it.
3: Very ingenious, you ask me.
0: Richard was involved in raising funds for the cure of retinitis pigmentosa, the disease that had cost Eddie his eyesight. In this message to Richard, Eddie said that he was a big Petty and Dodge fan and thanked Richard for his work in funding research for the disease. And Richard said in this short item, I've gotten taped letters before, but most of them were just kids fooling around or something. This is the first serious taped communication anyone has ever had with me. It's obvious he did a lot of work to put it together and I'm just glad he decided to send it to me.
3: Well, Richard's work for losing eyesight, uh, brought him a lot of solid attention. And obviously in this particular case, it was most appreciated.
6: Hi, I'm Huffy Wheeler, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
0: Okay, so are you ready for this big announcement?
3: Go for it, Rick.
0: (laughs) February 18th is, of course, the 20th anniversary of the 2001 Daytona 500, and those two years 2000, 2001, they were by far the most difficult of my career. And I know that they were very, very difficult for a lot of people
3: in that garage. Yeah.
0: For a lot of different reasons. In the year 2000, we lost Adam Petty, Kenny Irwin, and Tony Roper, one in each of NASCAR's three national divisions. Then in the 2001 Daytona 500, of course, we lost Dell Earnhardt. And that October, Blaze Alexander lost his life. During an ARCA race at Charlotte. And Steve, what we have done this offseason, we have put together a massive 10 episode podcast documentary series called Firestorm 2000 2001 the years that forever changed NASCAR. And we did it to honor the memories of Adam and Kenny and Tony and Dale and Blaze and the absolutely incredible safety advancements that have been made in the 20 years since the 2001 daytona 500
3: that was a tremendous undertaking largely on your part rick and the results i think are very very well
0: the documentary is going to be available on all the podcast platforms that you listen to Sane vault on it's not going to be a part of the same vault podcast it's going to be completely separate but of course we will make people aware of the links and everything. But Steve, I thought that it was just very important to honor all five of those drivers that we lost in addition to kind of deal with some of the controversy that came about.
3: I think you're exactly right, Rick. We did need to do this. And again, I must say it's quite an undertaking, but I think the listeners are going to be truly pleased.
0: Before we close out, here are some highlights.
5: That's
6: when we started realizing that, you know, people outside of our fence might be able to contribute.
1: Second lap by, the window net
3: comes down and that helmet comes flying out of that car. And the helmet's going, bang,
4: bang, bang. We were trying to have a child. You know, as we were strapping him in, we were like, okay, now protect all the, the jewels and all of this, you know, and... Engines were running, we got a quick handshake from him, got to see him smile one last time, and it's amazing, in a blink of an eye, someone can be gone. And He looked me straight in the eye and held his hand up, and he wobbled it like a teeter-totter back and forth. I remember Dad sitting down and talking to Kenny about his autograph, and saying, you know, Kenny, you're in NASCAR now, you've got to sign your name so people
3: can read it. When I see those kids come to camp and then leave with that smile on their face, and it's Adam's smile, I know Adam's still a part of me and still a part of my life and and still here with me.
4: I thought we had forever.